If you've got your Bibles, folks, uh, do keep Exodus 34 uh, open in front of you. We'll be working through particularly verses 10 to 28 of that passage. Before we do that, let's pray and ask God for his help this evening. Father in heaven, we praise your faithfulness of old. We praise you that your word remains true. Lord, we praise you that you have poured out your grace on us in the Lord Jesus Christ and that now, Lord Jesus, you address your people in your word with the same unchanging truth because you are the same yesterday, today and forever. So please help us with your spirit work among us so that we might hear and understand and believe and trust all that you have for us this evening, to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the uh, passage that uh, we had read to us from Exodus 34, uh, surprise, surprise, takes place uh, a little after Exodus 32 and 33. And uh, you may be familiar with what went on in Exodus 32 and 33. If you're not, let me fill you in. Uh, Moses, uh, having led the people of Israel uh, out of Egypt under the hand of God, uh, has led them through the desert. They are now at Mount Sinai, and he had gone up Mount Sinai with God to receive the law, to receive the Ten Commandments, which were kind of like the, the terms, the contract of the covenant that God was entering into Israel with. He received the law on stone tablets, But when he came down the mountain, you read about this in chapter 32, he had the tablets in hand. What did he find? He finds Israel worshipping a golden statue of a calf. And they were having the kind of party that these days you'd probably need ID to be able to get into. And uh, discovering their idolatry, he smashed the tablets to pieces. That was not a wild act of uncontrollable rage, rather it was a clear message. Israel, you have violated the covenant that God has made with you. But here in Exodus 34, the Lord, who we read is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness, the Lord shows them grace. He renews, he reestablishes his covenant with them. And just like the first time that he made this covenant, God declares his law to Moses. And that's what we have particularly in verses 10 to 26. The Lord reiterating the law. And Moses, in at the end of uh, the section we read, uh, verse 28 Moses writes down the Ten Commandments on the new stone tablets. But the specific laws that Exodus 34 sort of emphasizes are interesting. Because God in these verses does not just repeat the Ten Commandments word for word, does he? Rather these laws emphasize two things. On the one hand, do not tolerate the idolatry and false worship of the nations. That's verses 10 to 17. And then secondly, on the other hand, verses 18 to 26, do 
maintain the true worship that God has commanded. Worship God's ways, worship on God's days, worship the true God. Do not tolerate false worship on the one hand, but do maintain true worship on the other. Worship is the emphasis in these commandments. Now, why is that? Well, because worship was where Israel had royally stuffed up just a couple of chapters earlier, isn't it? They worshipped this false god, this graven image, made of gold, at least partially, probably, that they had looted from the Egyptians under the saving hand of God. God had provided them with this gold and this treasure, and what did they do with it? They made a graven image. They gave themselves over to pagan idolatry. And so God, who knows our frame, recognizes this is a problem for Israel. They are prone to false worship and pagan idolatry. But also, he knows where they're going. He knows where he's leading them. They are on their way to take over a land that is full of pagan idolatry. The spiritual danger of these nations is pretty clear. Look at verse 12 of chapter 34. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Verses 15 and 16. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and their daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. God saying to them, You're you are going to have to be on your guard. Because you're about to march into a world of spiritual darkness and if you are not careful, you are going to get sucked right into it and become just like the nations around you with their false worship as there has already been some of already. And here's the crucial lesson for the Christian today. If we take the church as what Galatians 6 calls the Israel of God, we can take this to say to us that we, like Israel, do not live in a world that is spiritually neutral. We do not live in a world that is spiritually safe. We do not live in a world that is sort of still when it comes to spiritual things. Sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that the world around us is a little bit like a spiritual swimming pool. Yeah, It's kind of shallow, it's, it's, it's contained, it's small, it's, it's calm, it's still. You can kind of jump in and then you can jump out again without too many issues. But the reality is that the world is not like a spiritual swimming pool, the world is like a spiritual ocean. And there are tides and there are currents that pull us all over the shop. And if we're not careful, we can end up a mile out to sea before we blink. The world is not a spiritually neutral place. And we can get pulled into its ways, its sins, its false worship. We need to be aware of this as Christians. On every side, sin, idolatry, worldliness... It's pushing and pulling us to veer off track. And if, you, if you're a Christian, no doubt you have felt this. 
and of whatever age. Children, you are not too young to have experienced this. Perhaps uh, at school or at your clubs or playing with your friends, you felt the pull to do things or say things that you know are wrong. And adults, we know that doesn't stop magically when you become a grown-up, does it? We all know what it's like, the, the, the pull, the danger of getting tangled up in the darkness of the world around, around us that we experience day to day. Maybe that's even where you find yourself this evening. Perhaps without particularly putting much effort in, you're finding that your life is looking like it belongs more to the world than belonging to to heaven. That's Israel's experience. It can very easily be ours. And so I, I'm convinced that the, the, the laws, the commands that are reiterated in this chapter are specifically aimed at preparing Israel to survive in the ocean. Right? And so there are several helps for us as we seek to be faithful to God in this world, that we find in this passage of Scripture. There are several helps for us as we seek to be Christians who are in the world, but not of the world, as Jesus puts it in John 17. Three helps that I want us to consider this evening that will help us remain anchored in this ocean that we live in. Here's the first one. First help from these verses, know the jealousy of God. Know the jealousy of God. Look at verses 12 to 14. Again, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or there will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. That doesn't perhaps sound very good to begin with, does it? And we perhaps might put a lot of effort into trying to stuff down our jealousy. Isn't jealousy a sin? Well, it often is, it often can be, but there is a good kind of jealousy. Uh, jealousy is sinful when we have a kind of out of proportion desire for something uh, that we have no right to. Right? Someone's got better shoes than you and you, it puts you in a mood and you get foul and grumpy for the rest of the day. That would suggest that is a, uh, an out of proportion, covetous uh, jealousy. But jealousy is a good thing when you want something that is rightfully yours. When someone steals from you, there is a right sense, a good sense, a just and righteous sense of, I want back what is rightfully mine. Well, folks, God is jealous for what is rightfully his. And in particular here, he is jealous for his own glory, for his worship. What does he say in verse 14? Do not worship any other God. He says, doesn't he, in Isaiah 42, I will not share my glory with another. Glory, worship, honor, praise, that belongs exclusively 
to the Lord who is the I Am. As the only true God, as the Creator God, He has exclusive rights to be worshipped by all and especially by His covenant people who have seen His wonderful works time and time again. He will not tolerate competition. He will not have His people have one eye on Him and another eye on the gods of the nations. He has exclusive rights to our love and to our affections, and our praise, and so he requires it. And therefore, not only is he jealous for his worship, but he's jealous for his people. He loves them, he's redeemed them, and he will not have them wander to the snares of the nations around them. They are his by right. Now folks, we should rejoice that God is jealous. We should rejoice that God is jealous because his jealousy is the reason Jesus came. He pursued us. From heaven he came and sought us, not happy to leave us in our sin, but he came to seek and save the lost, as John chapter 4 would say, to gather the worshippers that the Father desires. The Lord Jesus came because God has a holy zeal to be worshipped by his people. And we were lost and dead in sin, wandering after the gods of this world. And Jesus came to call us back and make us his eternally, securely, that we might worship him and him alone. The jealousy of God is the reason that Jesus went to the cross and died to redeem a sinful people. Not only did he do that once, but he also continues today to pursue us. He brings us into deeper and deeper love and knowledge of him by his word and spirit, showing us the beauty of who he is in the gospel. Every week as we meet like this, what's he doing? He's calling his people. He's pursuing his people. He's wooing his people, showing his jealous love for them. Sometimes he will even give us the sinful desires of our hearts to show us that they fail us and are worthless and to teach us and discipline us to not give ourselves to the the false worship of the world, but to give ourselves wholly to him. If we're going to live in a world that constantly tries to seduce us with its empty promises, we need a jealous God. We are as fickle as the Israelites. Don't think for a second that if we were in their shoes, we would have been loads better and loads different. We would have built that golden altar, that golden statue just as quickly. We need to remember that the jealous eye of God is on us and out of holy, jealous love, our great bridegroom came and pursued us and made us his bride. And he does not share his glory. Know the jealousy of God. But secondly, if we're going to stand firm in this world where tides and, and currents are pushing us all over the place, we need to know the jealousy of God. And secondly, we need to make no peace with sin. We need to make no peace with sin. 
twice God tells Israel in this passage, in this passage to be careful not to make a treaty with the nations around them. It's there in verse 12. Um, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going. And again in verse 15, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. Israel were to drive the nations out of the land. They were to not live alongside these idolatrous nations. What would happen if they did? Verse 16, when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and their daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. God's pretty frank here, isn't he? He's not saying, guys, look, you're great. Uh, you know, your, your faith and your love, they're, they're really strong. Uh, I want to encourage you in that, but you, you, know, you probably don't need to worry about what I'm about to say, but just so you, you know, just stay away from those guys. He, he's, he's coming at them and saying, look, Israel, you're weak and you're fickle. One invite to false worship, and before you know it, you'll be knee-deep in pagan sacrifices. He's very upfront with them, because he knows our frame. He knows what we are like. He knows that just as the world around us is not neutral towards him, because of our sin, we are not neutral towards him either. Even as believers with new hearts, the old man still kind of lurks in the shadows and gets really charged up when the temptations of the world and the lies of the devil are laid on thick. Christians should not be naive or cavalier in the world as if we are invincible from its seductions. Far from it. We've got to be careful and make no peace with the world. Make no peace, no treaty with sin. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't have anything to do with the world at all? Do we need to create a holy bunker where nothing sinful can ever enter and just eat you know, tinned goods for the rest of our lives. Well, no, that, of course, that's not possible, not least because if we're in the bunker, then sin is in the bunker because sin is in us, isn't it? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, if, if you're trying to not associate with immoral in, people in the world, then you're going to have to leave the world. You've got to get on one of Elon Musk's spaceships and blast up to Mars or something. You, you, there's no way of being able to not interact with the world in some way in this life. But I do think this is saying, although we don't need to build a sort of holy bunker, I do think this tells us that we need to be careful with what we, with what we feed our minds with, with what we feed our, our thoughts with. We've got to be wise with our friendships. Perhaps there might be instances where we, we just need to withdraw from a, a person or an event or technology or media because the temptation is, is too intense or because the activity going on is just so wicked that it's more damaging than good for me to be there or the, or the voice of the world is just winning our affections and so I just need to flee. We need wisdom in these things. Sometimes it's important for us to take the careful road and walk away. A particular danger for us, especially in a world of, sort of 
information and entertainment and technology and so on, is that we become numb and and desensitized to sin. And here's an example, and I use this example because I think this is a, a personal example for me. Um, think about the sin of blasphemy. Um, it's, it's just it's everywhere, isn't it? And there's all kinds of ways that we can blaspheme, but just the, using the actual words uh, and the name of God as a swear word, right? We hear that on TV, we hear it from friends and family, it's all, it's, it's all over the place. And because we're so exposed to it, we may not even notice it. We may just stop realizing that it's a, it's a thing. Even if we don't join in with it, we kind of become desensitized to it. And that is risky. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be at a point where I'm no longer bothered when there is sin going on around me or in me. Because when we're desensitized to sin, we stop hating it. And when we stop hating it, we're beginning to make peace with it. And when we're beginning to make peace with it, we're not far from walking into it. Isn't that what God's saying to the Israelites here? Be careful of making peace with those nations because before you know it, you'll be doing the very same thing. We've got to know ourselves. We've got to know our hearts and recognize this, that there is a danger that when we are desensitized to these things, we can end up walking in them. I think I need to sort of proactively work at reminding myself, it is not, it's just not okay for people to use the Savior's name like that. It's just not okay. He's told us that his name is to be revered and honored and feared. We must not make peace with sin. Are there areas in your life where you are in danger of, of becoming numb, desensitized to sin? I do encourage you to have a think about that and consider your workplace, the, the, the friendships that you're part of, the, the activities that you're involved in. Where is sin prominent and are there ways in which you're becoming or are at risk of becoming desensitized? Be careful. Do not make a treaty. In fact, God goes a step further, doesn't he? Not only do not make peace with sin, but look what he says in verse 13. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. In other words, destroy their idols. Now, I can see you all reaching for your hammers. You can put them down. Uh, this doesn't mean that we should physically go and smash up mosques and temples ourselves. Uh, under the old covenant... Uh, God's people were promised a physical land and they had physical enemies. But what do we know about our enemies? Ephesians 6, well-known passage, tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities and powers at work in this evil age. Ephesians 5, verse 11 tells us, have nothing to do with the fruitless work of darkness, but instead expose those works. Or 2 Corinthians 10, how do we expose these works? Listen to how Paul describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. 
the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So, like I said, hammers away. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So the idea is, rather than going and making physical weapons, we are actually sent out into the world to be holy people, to live distinctly, to have nothing to do with the darkness, but to rather expose it as we proclaim the gospel and as we persuade people that Jesus is Lord. We want to be ready with an answer so that the kingdom of darkness might be raided, so that captives might be set free, and so that the kingdom of Christ would be filled with those who were once up to their eyeballs in sin, but have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. If we are going to stand firm, we need to know the jealousy of God. We need to make no peace with sin. Thirdly and finally, if we are going to stand firm in the ocean that is the world, we must maintain God's worship. We must maintain God's worship. God reiterates here in Exodus 34, he reiterates the commands about festivals and days of worship, doesn't he? Uh, You have the Sabbath commandment in verse 21. Then there are there are three particular feasts that are also mentioned. The Feast of Unleavened Bread in verse 18, which began with the Passover, where the people remembered uh, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and the, uh, the, the, the night of the Passover where the lamb was killed instead of the firstborn and they were set free from their slavery. Then in verse 22, two other feasts are mentioned. We have the Feast of Weeks, which was seven weeks after the Passover, where the first fruits of the harvest were given to God. And then again in verse 22, there's the Feast of Ingathering, which was also called the Feast of Booths, where Israel lived in handmade shelters for a week as a reminder of their wilderness wanderings. Now, what's going on with these special days and these feasts? Well, they were absolutely for bringing God his worship. Right, that, that's, that's at the forefront of what these are for. But worship works in two ways. Worship is about bringing God the glory that he deserves. But worship does something to the worshipper. Worship does something to the worshipper. These feasts, well, I mean, just, in, just, Think about what it would have been like to be these Israelites at this point, celebrating these feasts. These feasts were massive, sort of fat reminders of God's goodness. Right? The festival or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Guys, remember how God redeemed us from Egypt by working his mighty hand and producing those plagues and showing the gods of Egypt to be nothing and then providing the Passover lamb? Remember how God has been faithful in providing for us with our crops and with our herds every day until now? Remember how God has sustained us all the way through the wilderness, through to the promised land? Remember how he is with us and tabernacled among us? That changes you, doesn't it? 
That bolsters you. That brings the reality of who God is right before your eyes and into your mind and down into your heart. It cuts through the voices of the world that want to draw you away from the living God. How could I leave Him? How could I sin against Him? Look at all that He's done for me. Look at the Passover. Look at the Exodus. Look at His provision. There is no God but our God. And He has done me no wrong. How could I turn away from Him? This is what our worship does today. And particularly, I think, as we gather here on Sundays as the church. That is what our worship is meant to do. We come into the presence of God in the name of the Lord Jesus and we sing His praise and we hear His word and we share the bread and wine and we draw near in prayer and we do it to bring Him, His praise and His worship not only because it's a commandment but also because it's a weapon. It's a defense. It is a means of neutralizing the loud voices of the world and drowning them out with God's truth. You know, we we spend, what is it, 160 plus hours a week out there in enemy territory. With the world and all its idols sort of grasping at us. Then we, we gather together in the presence of our captain, the Lord Jesus, we come together for respite and refreshment to be built up, have our wounds tended to, and then we are sent out again into the world. I, I would really encourage you to see these services as preparation for battle, where Christ tends to us and equips us to do His will and to live for Him in the world. Let's make no mistake that we live in a world that is hungry for our souls, where the devil lurks and wants to swallow us up and devour us. This world is not neutral. And so we must know our jealous God who has made us his through the Lord Jesus Christ. We must make no peace with the world and with the flesh and with the devil. We must be devoted to the worship of God so that we might have nothing to do with the fruitless works of darkness but expose them and remain faithful to the God who has brought us near and who has washed us of all our sins and has made us his through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray in his name now.